All right, so let me begin with a recap, as I often do. But this time, uh, maybe more uh, important because it has been three weeks since I've been up here. Um, Paragraph one of this chapter on assurance. I entitled The Hope of Assurance. That week we defined it. We took note of the fact that assurance of salvation is real. But we also took note of the fact that false assurance is real. False assurance does not erase the reality of true assurance, but at the same time it it makes us aware that we might potentially be one of those who have fallen into a false assurance. So that, that dual reality sort of puts us on the edge of our seat. I know that it's there. But I don't want the the fake thing. I want the real thing. The hope of assurance. It's there. It's offered. It is a a real thing for the Christian to have. Paragraph 2 I entitled the foundations of assurance. And the question that I answered there or that the confession answers is what do we look to upon which we are to build our assurance? Where do we look? The answer was in three things. Specifically, the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel inward evidence of grace and the testimony of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, with our spirit that we are sons of God. We look to those things, we take note of them, and based upon those and all of the the, the ways that those truths kind of spider out into many other truths, we can begin to build a confident assurance. Paragraph 3 I entitled, The Attainment of Assurance. And I qualified that, you'll remember, by saying that I wasn't going to give you a list of you know, do this, do this, do this, and you'll have assurance. But it was, uh, that, that paragraph is more of a description of our experience of the attainment of assurance. I tried to qualify that so that you didn't think that you could go home and say, well, the preacher said do this, this, and this, and I still don't feel real great. We talked about the, uh, our experience of its attainment. We saw that it's not guaranteed at the moment of regeneration, although some believers do come to have a, a, a solid assurance from the very f- moment of their salvation, their, their regeneration. Others do not. So it's not guaranteed, but it's not forbidden. We, don't, we can't tell somebody, unless you are assured, then it wasn't the real thing. But we can't tell somebody, you'll never have it, so don't worry at all. It's not guaranteed. It's not forbidden. The reality is that we might labor long before we actually come into a a true assurance. And that assurance is tamed through the regular use of the regular means of grace. We don't have to have some supernatural or or extra uh, natural revelation other than what God has already given to us. We're not looking for a, a second level attainment in the Christian life. The regular use of the regular means of grace. That's a recap. Now, this evening, we are not going to get to paragraph 4. I want to give some uh, clarifications. It's come to my attention that following the last lecture on paragraph 3, August 30th, a discussion arose in my absence which seems, by all accounts to have chiseled away at some of the things that were said in that lecture and even the language of the confession itself. From the few whiffs that I've gotten of the second-hand smoke after it cleared, it doesn't appear that anything was clarified but only made more confusing. And so I want to take the evening and clarify 
what I have gathered are, are some of the primary points of contention or misunderstanding. I, I want to be very clear. Uh, I'm going to do that first by addressing some of the difficulties that I personally recognize come with studying through the confession the way that we're doing it. The first thing is this. In studying anything in a linear and connected fashion, like we're doing with the confession, or even if we were studying through a book of the Bible, especially like we're going through Galatians and there are big gaps, when we're studying anything in a linear fashion, there's always an increased need for the hearer and the speaker to work extra hard to make the connection between the various parts. But whether it's a sermon, whether it's a lecture, uh, we break up these things for the sake of time. We break up these things in order to dig into the details a little bit more and open them up. But that doesn't always help us to keep the big picture in mind. So though it might take four weeks to get through one chapter, the chapter is still one chapter, still one unit of thought. Uh, and it has to be understood as such. And so paragraph 3, for example, is not separate from paragraph 2 and paragraph 1. And paragraph 4 is not separate from paragraphs 1, 2, and 3. They all come together. Break, but breaking up these things in this way is difficult. What does this require? It's important that we learn, and this is something that we have to go through as a congregation, learn how to listen to a sermon, or in the case of the confessional study, a lecture, Learn how to listen in order to hear. Listen to hear what is being said. As it's being said, read what the confession says. Don't listen to argue. Listen to hear. Now, there is a difference between being a Berean. The Bereans, remember, received the word with all eagerness first before they begin to study the Scriptures to see if the things that Paul had said were so. There's a difference between being a Berean and being somebody who just listens to nitpick and, and find chinks in the armor of those who have been appointed to teach the Word in the assembly. Listen to hear. Secondly, if you miss a week, make sure that you listen to the sermon audio. We don't have a sermon audio account. There's a reason for that. It costs money. But secondarily, we've never pursued it because I don't preach or record sermons to get them out to the world. It's for us. So if you miss, you go back and listen. If you miss one, go back and listen to see what you've missed. And I would even add to that, if you're a member of this church and you miss a week and then you don't go back and listen to the audio to catch up, I'm really wondering why you're here at all. That, that's the, the whole point is to, to, to glean the truth together. So listen to, to hear... And then if you miss something, go back and listen to it again to make sure, to clarify. But breaking things up like this is hard. I get that. And I'm a, the way I teach, I know I, do, I probably do it the most difficult way it could possibly be done. I recognize that. Second difficulty, adding on to that one, is in addition to breaking up large portions into smaller portions, there's the simple reality that I am not always as clear as I ought to be, need to be, or as I think I'm being. That goes for any teacher or preacher, but I recognize this reality seven days a week if I'm talking to myself, if I'm talking to my wife, or if I'm talking to you, I realize a lot of times I'm not being near as clear as I think I'm being. 
So then, implications of that. I really appreciate questions, concerns, and the opportunity to clarify myself. If you come to me after the service or during the week with questions, that doesn't bother me. That lets me know you're listening. That lets me know that something I said triggered something in your heart or in your mind. You're paying attention and you're wrestling with these things. I would rather that than to go for decades never hearing any interaction and just hoping that something is being absorbed. My desire is to affect the heart and the mind as much as I can, and so questions are welcome. So, please, 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 if I have been unclear, come to me and give me, the. and this goes for all, anybody who stands up here, give me and those who preach and teach the base respect of allowing us to clarify our own words and defend what we have said. If I have misspoken, and I think I've displayed this at least to some extent in the past, if I have misspoken, I will gladly publicly prove or or show, correct what needs to be corrected. If I'm wrong, I'll amend, I will correct, I'll re-preach the text, I'll recover the paragraph, whatever needs to be done. But I can't do those things. And I don't get the opportunity to do those things if questions are not brought to me, but they're taken to somebody else or they're reserved for my absence. I'm not always clear, and I understand that. Thirdly, and this is... uh, I'll still group this in the category of the difficulties. Uh, The London Baptist Confession of Faith is our church's confession of faith. It's a summary of biblical doctrine, which every one of us, if you're a member of this church, we've all read, we've all affirmed. We believe that these things are true. If you're a member here, then you've given your consent to be instructed in accordance with the Scripture as a whole and specifically with regard to the doctrinal formulation set forth in the confession. In other words, and you know this when we go through the membership process, I say, do you have any questions? Are there any any errors or things that you don't agree with in the confession? I want to know them. That's fine. But just so you know, I'm going to be teaching according to this. And that's, that's what we do. That's what we believe. This is what we're going to do. We hold to this confession as a unifying document of doctrinal standards because we believe it is biblical. We believe, with respect to the doctrines that are addressed, it is an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches on those specific doctrines. That's why we have it. If we didn't have it, we, we wouldn't, or if we didn't believe it, we wouldn't have it. We'd just make up our own. Now, we believe that unity in the truth of the Bible is of supreme importance in the local church. We believe unity in the body demands an open, clear, and bold declaration of the truth. We believe that. If there's going to be unity, we have to know. We have to be be on some sort of open dialogue, open conversation. Here's what we believe. That's why we have a website. We put it on the internet. Here's what we believe. Read every word of it. We're not going to give you a link to go somewhere else and read it. We're going to copy and paste the whole thing right here. You can read every word of it. This is what we believe. You come here, we're going to preach this. This is what we believe. We are a social, or we are social, but we're not primarily a social organization. We are a pillar and buttress of the truth. And where truth is at stake, we have to be ready to break ties with any and all error. Error. 
We do not desire to unite with people who simply want community or fellowship at the cost of an open statement of the truth. We preach the truth. That's why we have a confession of faith. That's why we hold to this specific confession of faith. We believe it is biblical. If we didn't believe it was biblical, we'd throw it in the trash and say, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? It unites us. Brings us together. This is our confession. We believe it. We believe it because it's biblical. We teach it because it's biblical. Since we believe it, and we believe it because it's biblical, we teach from it. That is, we use the confession in these Sunday school classes as a curriculum. Now someone might object. Why not just exposit the Scriptures? Here's my answer. When someone preaches a sermon, a part of that sermon is exposition. Not the whole sermon, but a part of it is exposition. Exposition is taking words not found in the Bible and explaining the words that are in the Bible. That's what exposition is. The confession is a document of words not in the Bible explaining words that are in the Bible. That's, that's what we have here. And so when we come together like this, what we're essentially doing is making an analysis of exposition that took place a long time before we got here and sort of presenting it in a reverse exposition. We look at the words that are not found in the Bible to explain the words that are found in the Bible, and then we go to the Bible to read those words to say, hey, those words that were not in the Bible explaining the words that are in the Bible actually did a pretty good job explaining the words that are in the Bible. It's just backwards, but it's the same idea. We're opening up and drawing out the truth of the Scriptures. We teach it because it is biblical. And then lastly, returning to July of 2017, yes, it's been that long, when it comes to our confession of faith and the soil out of which it grew in the 17th century, I do believe I'm safe in saying that the men who put together the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration and our Baptist forefathers who came along and took those two documents and corrected their errors and put together the Baptist Confession, if we put all of those men together, they're smarter than anybody in this room. I'm not afraid to say that without blinking. They are smarter. We're smarter. So when they make statements, and we read their words as articulated in the confession, these are well thought out statements. And I've, I've mentioned before how these, these men will, will summarize in a paragraph what, what it takes John Gill 25 pages to explain. When they present doctrines, they present them in a manner in which the Christian church has historically presented them as they have defended them against heresies. When these men wrote, they wrote within a broad theological context. Therefore, when we come to this document, our confession, we have to understand that we're entering into a field of theological discourse that transcends our present context. We are joining the conversation. We're not starting the conversation. We're not reinventing the conversation. We're joining it. We're saying, hey guys, what are y'all talking about? We're joining. This means, and this is hard for our generation because we are as guilty as any other of chronological snobbery. This means that we are not the smartest generation who has ever lived. As a matter of fact, because I'm not an evolutionist, I would argue the opposite. We're the dumbest generation that's ever lived. We're not getting better. We're getting worse. Now, men, will, uh, men who've gone before us uh, may have had, or there, or there have been times where men have come and uh, received greater revelation. 
But the only way that we can learn from these men is if we will actually learn from them. The only way we benefit from the gifts of Christ to His church for almost 20 centuries is to come into the conversation and say, Hey, what are y'all talking about? Learn. Does this imply that they're always right? Of course not. Of course not. And I didn't say that. Now, it's come to my attention that the discussion which arose revolved around the following phrase, This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith. Or as I rephrased it, assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. Here's the question. Is that a true statement? Assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. Remember, we are entering into the field of theological discourse, which means we don't come to dictate the terms or the matters which are being discussed, we come to learn from these terms. We're entering into a field of discourse which has been the subject of a lot of debate. This is not some easy, oh yeah, sure, okay, yeah. No, there's a lot of debate here. The, The topic of assurance of grace and salvation is a specific topic which needed to be articulated because of the errors that had surrounded it in biblical times, in the time of the Reformation, and in the times following the Reformation. I go back to the chapter on adoption. One paragraph. Here it is. Nobody's arguing about this. Move along. Assurance of salvation, four paragraphs. Wait till we get to the church. Many paragraphs. What are people arguing about? We're entering into the conversation. So within that specific field of discourse, Thomas Brooks, a man living during the times of uh, the Puritan era, the, 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 the thinking minds, in which our uh, confession was born, Thomas Brooks writes and gives this definition, which I gave the very first week. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to give a rather grotesque emphasis on several things. Assurance is a reflex act of a gracious soul, whereby he clearly and evidently sees himself in a gracious and blessed and happy state. It is a sensible feeling and an experimental discerning of a man's being in a state of grace and of his having a right to a crown of glory. That's the way Brooks defined it from my survey of other men who have written on these things. This seems to be a a good general synopsis. So then I broke it down. Tonight I'm going to break it down even further. Reflex act. What does that phrase mean? I read to you the first week from Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which says, I just looked up reflex, because we have a definition of reflex, right? We know what a reflex is in our language. What did they mean? Reflex, quote, directed back, semicolon, as a reflex act of the soul. Comma, the turning of the intellectual eye inward upon its own actions. Right? That's not what we typically mean when we use the word reflex. That's what these guys meant. A reflex. Turning and looking inside yourself. Alright, second phrase. Sensible feeling. Now, a lot of people in our camp are afraid of that word feelings. We pretend that feelings 
emotions, affections are simply bad. But that's not true. While feelings are not our standard, we don't base things. That wasn't in paragraph 2. The blood and righteousness of Christ, evidence of grace in the soul, witness of the Spirit. Nowhere do we see feelings. We don't base anything on that. While feelings are not our standard, they are not absent from Christian experience. When God saves a man, He saves the whole man, including his feelings. And as God is sanctifying a man and his religion is worked out in the soul, an absence of feeling or affection is bad. That's a sign of danger. That's how a believer knows something's not quite right here. I quote to you from Jonathan Edwards in his work on religious affections, what we would probably call synonymous with the feelings. What has been said of the nature of the affections makes this evident and may be sufficient without adding anything further, which is ironic because he writes a a, a massive work on this. Uh, I think it was big. Without adding anything further, to put this matter out of doubt, for who will deny that true religion consists in a great measure in vigorous and lively actings of the inclination and will of the soul? or the fervent exercise of the heart. That's how he defined the affections, the, what we call feelings. That, relig- that religion which God requires and will accept does not consist of weak, dull, and lifeless wishes taking us but little above a state of indifference. That's not Christianity, he says. The things of religion are so great that there can be no suitableness in the exercises of our heart to their nature and importance unless they be lively and powerful. In other words, if I put this in my own words, this salvation is so magnificent that if you say you've come into this salvation and yet you're, you're not involved with your affections, your, your feelings, you've not gotten the real deal. Christian experience consists largely in the affections, the actions of the heart and the will, which Brooks calls feeling, sensible feeling. Again, we don't base our standing with God on feelings. We don't base our assurance on feelings. But if there are no feelings, we ought to recognize something's not right here. If I put my hand on a hot stove and I don't feel anything, there are a couple problems. Either my hand's not working, my brain's not working, or the stove's not on. It's not actually hot. There are feelings. So there's a reflex act. The eye looking inward, sensible feeling, a moving of the affections, the feelings within. And then thirdly, there's this phrase, experimental discerning. Experimental discerning. Experimental means that you are testing what's inside of you. Think of a science experiment. Uh, These men would also use the word experiential and experimental almost synonymously. But they didn't just mean, I had this this experience. What they mean is, like a science experiment, you test and you observe and you draw out conclusions from what you're seeing happening within you. Discerning is distinguishing or making distinctions, determining between various things. And so an experimental discerning is a testing and observing and a making of determinations about what's happening inside of me. So Brooks defines assurance using these terms, reflex, act, sensible feeling, experimental, discerning. And these actions produce what? Clearly and evidently seeing oneself in a gracious 
blessed and happy state, being in a state of grace, having a right to a crown of glory. In other words, as I said, I believe that was the first or second week, assurance is being personally aware after personal examination that you are presently in a gracious standing before God and in light of that have a confident expectation of glory. Assurance is seeing yourself in that state after the reflex act, after this experimental discerning, coming to that sensible feeling of assurance. Assurance is a sensible feeling that you are in a state of grace, a personal recognition of that truth. That is assurance of grace and salvation in the field of theological discourse. Now the confession says that assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. So here we have another term that needs to be defined, the word essence. Though we often use this term typically in the form of essentially, and we just sort of throw it out, you know, like we know what it means. We have to be clear that when theologians use the term essence, it comes with a lot of baggage. This is, again, this is not a throwaway word. In Muller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, he defines essence using its Latin form essentia as, quote, the whatness or quiditas of a being, which makes the being precisely what it is. The whatness of a thing. That's its essence. In other words, when we discuss the essence of a thing, we're discussing the most basic parts that make it what it is. You got all the parts there, you have the thing. Take away one part, you don't have the thing anymore. So the confession is saying, and we are confessing, that assurance, as we've defined it, is not of the essence, as we just heard, defined, of faith. In other words, the reflex act or the experimental discerning and sensible feeling of being in a state of grace is not something that, if absent, causes faith to stop being faith. It's not of the essence of faith. Or we could say positively that somebody can have true faith and that faith not be made up in part of a reflex act of their soul, discerning and observing the actings of their heart and sensibly recognizing themselves to be in a state of grace. That's not required to have true faith. Assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. The last theological term is faith, which you've already covered in chapter 14, so I'll just summarize by giving you the question and answer of the Baptist Catechism number 91. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He has offered to us in the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He has offered to us in the gospel. Now, did anybody hear anything in that definition, anything to the effect that simultaneous with the moment of receiving and resting upon Christ for salvation, we have to also look inside of ourselves in a reflex act of our soul, experimentally discern what's happening, come to a sensible feeling that we are in a state of grace? No. These are two different activities of the soul. One is looking out, one is looking in. Let me read to you a longer quote from John Murray. 
I didn't want to type this one out. As Albert Martin referred to him as Professor Murray. Let's see what Professor Murray has to say. There is an obvious distinction between assurance or conviction and the direct or primary act of faith. The primary and direct act of faith is not belief that we have been saved and are heirs of eternal glory, but an act of entrustment to Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel in order that we may be saved. The primary act is trust in Christ for salvation. The assurance of faith is the conviction that this salvation is ours. We may distinguish, distinguish these as the primary or direct act and the secondary or reflex act, now this is going to come up later, of faith. Keep that in mind. Whatever we may call the respective acts, the distinction is too obvious to need any elaborate defense. Since the assurance of faith is logically subsequent or reflex, this faith in the nature of the case cannot be of the essence of the primary act of faith. It is the very opposite that is of the essence of the direct and primary act of faith. For the latter proceeds not from assurance that we are saved. In other words, when I entrust myself to Christ, I don't do that. That's not me believing that I am saved. It comes, he says, from the conviction that we are lost. Why do I look out to Christ? Because I believe I'm not lost. Not because I believe I'm saved. But notice... Well, don't let me get ahead of myself. Is assurance of the essence of faith? No. Since assurance, to quote him again, since assurance of faith is logically subsequent or reflex, this faith, in the nature of the case, cannot be of the essence of the primary act of faith. Now what he just did there, and what I pointed out, he draws out what is the next inquiry. What's our next question? What is the specific connection then between faith and assurance? Since assurance is not of the essence of faith... Does that mean that faith and assurance have no connection at all? The answer is clearly no again. They're obviously connected. And and what I pointed out was that he said, we may distinguish these as the primary or direct act and the secondary or reflex act, comma, of faith. They're both acts of faith. They are connected. Returning to our lecture on the second paragraph this past week in order to vindicate myself, I did find that in that lecture I used the words faith and believe no less than 40 times. So if in the lecture on paragraph 3 I seem to imply that there was no connection between faith and assurance, it was because number one, I was probably not as clear as I ought to have been, or number two, I was assuming lecture two as I gave lecture three. The confession is not saying that there's no connection between assurance and faith. It is saying, listen to here, assurance is not of the essence of faith. That doesn't mean that there's no connection. As a matter of fact, as many have said before, the seed of assurance is found in faith. Now, somebody objects. Does that not imply then that assurance is of the essence of faith? No. The seed of assurance which is in faith, is no more assurance than the seed of an apple is a tree. While that seed might contain in it those things needed to be a tree, without added nutrients and sunlight and water, it'll never be a tree. Because the seed is there, that doesn't mean the full thing is there. On the other hand, I can go to a nursery and buy a tree that doesn't have any fruit on it. It has no seeds. That doesn't mean what I got was not a tree. Why? 
because seeds are not of the essence, the essentia of tree-ness. If you want to grow a tree, at some point you're going to need seeds. But a tree with no seeds is no less a tree. It's not of the essence of treeness to have seeds. In the same way, the seed of assurance, which can someday develop into assurance, is found in saving faith. We'll go back to paragraph 2 where I said faith 40 times. If you want assurance, you must have faith. And the things necessary for assurance are found in faith. But where there is no assurance, no reflex act of the soul, that doesn't make faith any less faith. Why? Because assurance is not of the essence of faith. We have to pay attention to the words and phrases that are being used in the confession if we're going to understand what is being confessed. Now, I'm not assuming that you all went into that detail in that three months before you joined the church. We, we understand that. Second thing then, so as far as I can tell, the questions uh, surrounded the ESV's translation of Hebrews 11.1. 11, 1 in the ESV, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In the King James Version, it's translated, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, I could, I could extend this. I don't want to. So let's just set aside English translations. We know that these men who put this together were not limited by an English translation. We, we know that. Let's just think on a purely practical level. If you have a hymnal, you can't see the Scripture references. You don't know what they are. I just read them to you. But if you had one of the copies of the Confession with Scripture references, you'd notice that three times in this chapter, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 to 19, that little section is referenced three times. Nowhere is Hebrews 11, 1 referenced. Now, are we to assume that the men of the Westminster Assembly, the Savoy Declaration... And then our Baptist forefathers who came along later and took their documents, corrected their errors, and gave us the Baptist Confession of Faith. Are we to assume that all of these men read to Hebrews 6, gave up before they got to Hebrews 11, and made a a simple oversight that has lasted for 300 and some odd years to this point that nobody's caught? Of course not. Of course not. We've all heard of the word concept fallacy. Here's how it works. Uh, Trinity's not, that doesn't, that's not real. Well, how do you know? Well, I mean, the Bible nowhere uses the word trinity. That's called the word concept fallacy. Just because the word is there doesn't mean that the concept can't be there. Well, here we have a reversal of that fallacy. The word assurance is found in the English Standard Version at this point, but it's not dealing with the concept of assurance, of grace and salvation, or the assurance of faith. The word used in Hebrews 6, 11... It's not the same word that's used in Hebrews 11.1. 1. And again, I'm not, I'm not even going to get into that. But notice Hebrews 11.1. 1, and I'm just going to read these, these brief statements so you don't have to see them. Just listen. Hebrews 11.1. 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hebrews 6.11 says assurance of hope. Assurance of things Hoped for, assurance of hope. That which is hoped for, Romans 8.25, is something outside of us. It's something that we do not see. Hope is something we have. That's something inside of us. It's a grace worked in us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, full assurance of hope. 
When we enter the theological discourse of the assurance of grace and salvation or the assurance of faith, we're not dealing with the question, must I be assured of the things hoped for? The answer to that is clearly and unequivocally, yes. You can't come to God saying, well, I'm not sure that He's there, but ah, let's just give it a shot. I've heard about this Christ. I'm not real sure that it's actually a real thing, but ah, let's give it a shot. No, faith is, you are assured, to use this language, and the word, uh, again, substance, I think is actually a better word. Um, these, are, these are two different things. One is looking out to something. One is looking in. You can't come to God doubting that He is or that He saves. You can't come to Christ doubting that He is or that He alone saves. It is the very nature of faith, looking outside of myself and unto God in Christ to save my helpless soul. That's why I'm calling out to Him. That's what faith is. But that's not the question at all in the sphere of assurance. That's not what we're talking about. The question in the conversation around assurance of grace and salvation is about myself. Not foundationally, I'm not building it on myself, but practically, what am I trying to achieve in assurance? And that's why I've labored week after week after week to try to clarify what this thing is. What am I after? The question is about whether or not I am actually a partaker of that salvation. Not whether or not God is able to save. These are two different things. How can I prove that we, we know that, that these men knew that? What are the other references that were used? Psalm 88, Psalm 77. Did the authors of those psalms doubt God? Are they wondering if God is there? No, they're calling out to God. They're praying to God because they believe that He is, that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. I'm calling out to you who are there. I'm sure that you are there. Why? Because I'm not feeling that you are there. That's why they call out. So Hebrews 11.1, while containing, in some English translations, the word assurance, hypostasis, is not a text dealing with the concept of assurance of grace and salvation as it is being addressed in the history of theological discourse or in our confession. In other words, that's irrelevant. That's an irrelevant text. So conclusion. Assurance of grace and salvation is not of the essence of faith. While they are connected, and you cannot have assurance without faith, the statement of the confession stands as a true assertion and one which we must be willing and able to defend as it stands. Now why do I say that? What's at stake here? What's at stake if we take assurance and make it of the essence of faith? The question is basically asking, what's at stake if I add to the essence of a thing? If I say that it is of the essence of dogness to have long floppy ears, a pug is no longer a dog. If I say that it is of the essence of manness to have a beard, I'm not a man. When you wrongly require additions to the essence of a thing, you alter the very whatness of it. You change its definition. More serious example. Is it of the essence of manness to be capable of sin? No. If it is... Jesus Christ is not a man. We have no Savior. That would be a serious problem. 
When you begin to tamper with the essence, the essentia, or the essay of a thing, you're tampering with the foundational principles. When we take assurance, a reflex act of the soul, in which one is examining themselves either consciously or subconsciously, and we add that, we make that an essential element of faith, we are changing the very idea of saving faith. We're taking what was once, look and live, and we're turning it to look, and then look at yourself to see if you're actually being healed, and then you'll be healed. Make sure you're actually looking. We're taking, look unto me and be you saved. And we're changing it to, look unto me and as you look, look at yourself and make sure that you're looking unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. The very essence of faith is looking away from self. When a man gets sick of looking at himself, he'll look away. And when he looks to Christ, when he turns and gets one glance of Christ, that will settle the issue. That's faith. When we make assurance of the essence of faith, we make God's work in us the ground of salvation. We make our own sensible awareness of God's Word, or God's work rather, in us, the ground of our salvation. Am I sensing it? Well, then I can base my salvation on that. When we make our own ability, or when we, when we do this, we make our own ability to rightly discern what God is doing, the ground of our salvation. Ultimately, we make ourselves and our senses the ground of salvation. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. What is faith? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. The Gospel teaches us of a good God who requires His creatures to serve Him perfectly. We, the creatures, do not serve Him perfectly. On the contrary, we sin against Him. We violate His perfect law and in every activity of our lives by nature because we do not render to Him the worship and the honor that He has owed in our activities. In that regard, we are slaves. We are corrupt at the very root and core of our nature as humans. And by ourselves, we are powerless to make any change. We are criminals and God is the offended party and the judge. Because He is a good judge, He doesn't have the option to just let us off the hook. His law requires justice be served. The Gospel teaches that this same offended Creator in the person of His Son became a man like the rebels. He lived a man's life perfectly in the place of the rebels. He went to the cross and received in Himself the due punishment for the sins of the rebels. He died a man's death in the place of those sinners and three days later, He came back from the dead. He didn't need to stay dead any longer because the justice of God was satisfied. His Father was pleased with what He had done as an offering to be substituted in the place of sinners. He ascended into the heavens where He's now enthroned as Lord and King over all that He's made, and He will come again to take us to Himself, so that where He is, we may be also. Now you say, that was the Gospel, by the way, receiving Christ as He set forth in the Gospel. Now you hear that and you say, no, when you were describing those creatures earlier, it sounded like you were talking, talking about me. 
I've violated God's law. I've sinned against Him and other people. I live in bondage to my sins. No matter how hard I try, I can't get loose. It sounds like you're describing me. It sounds like I might be one of those sinners as you just referred to them. If that's you, my job here today as an appointed messenger of Jesus Christ. I told somebody recently, I'm going to start telling people that I work for the government. I'm an appointed messenger of Jesus Christ. I'm on official duty today. You can see I have my jacket on. I'm on official duty. And I have been... He actually told me to tell you that if you would take Him to be yours, forsaking all others, even yourself and your own sin, and rest upon Him for your salvation, He's more than willing to save you. He said to tell you, that even though you've sinned against God and your sin angers God every day, if you'd reach out and take hold of Him by faith, this Jesus, He's already done the work necessary to reconcile you with God. He's already made perfect peace between you and God. But you have to repent of your sins, turn away from yourself, and throw your soul into His hands. And He said to tell you that He'll make sure it gets to where it needs to go. He's done this many times before. That's faith. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as He has been set forth in the gospel. If you've done that, you're a Christian. Period. If you've done that. Now, does that mean that there are going to be evidences of grace that flow from that? Absolutely. We're not talking about that. Faith. By faith, we have been reconciled to God. Justified by faith. We need to be careful that we don't tamper with faith. Let's pray.